Pastor Kuhn, there have been some questions come in uh, uh, regarding the non-Christian um, husband or wife. And here's one. Uh, what do you think uh, a kind Christian like me can do for an alcoholic husband? He laughs at religion, scoffs at the Bible, and takes the Lord's name in vain continuously. He has the foulest mouth imaginable, and it almost breaks my heart. Thank you for the question. Before we answer, let us ask the Lord to give us proper answers from his word. Dear Lord, you've said ask, and it shall be given you. Here are friends of ours who have put in these questions that are sincere. Thank you for giving us the wisdom to give your answers. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's an individual, friends, who has a foul mouth, a non-Christian. He's an alcoholic. And here's his dear Christian wife, wondering what in this world she can do. I'm so happy, friends, that the Lord has given us an answer. And it's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. It's a very, a very simple answer, and yet it's complicated unless we are able to connect with the Lord and his loving power. It says this. It says, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands. And it says, if you'll do this without arguing at all, without any word of preachment, but you have a sweet, meek, and quiet spirit, it says this is the way to win them. This alcoholic man is an alcoholic because he is insecure. And as an alcoholic, he continues to be insecure. He needs to find someone he needs to fix his gaze on someone who is secure without alcohol, who is secure without any of the vices in which he's engaging. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that by beholding, we are changed in the same image. Many, many Christian people have the impression that the way to win the alcoholic is to belittle him. That drives him deeper into it. Or by shaming him so that he'll shape up. But the alcoholic cannot shape up. No sinner can shape up. So that is the wrong method. The way to win this alcoholic to the better way of life, this alcoholic, profane, vile man, is for him to see in his Christian mate the Lord Jesus Christ in his meekness, his loveliness. And, uh, and for the person who put in this question, that this person and others may be amazed that the same scripture going down to the seventh verse says that the lady whose husband is in this situation is to be so nice to him just like Sarah, Abraham's wife, was to him. Abraham was a good man. But this alcoholic is a profane, vile man. And it says to use the same method on this wicked man that Sarah used on a good man. It says she actually almost genuflected to Abraham. She called him Lord, not sarcastically, called him Lord. So if this Christian wife will do what the Lord says, represent the loveliness, the beauty, the meekness, the sweetness, the wholesomeness of Jesus, in all probability, she'll win him to the Lord. But with this, she'll claim a promise from God's word. She'll claim a promise that angels will cluster about this man. The Holy Spirit will speak to him and that the Lord will bring into his life certain individuals, maybe no relatives of hers. She may claim a promise like Psalm 2.8. 
I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. And God will hear an answer. By the way, you might be interested to know, George Mueller, that great man of faith and prayer, had actually thousands of names of non-Christians on his prayer list. When he died, it is reported that every one of those thousands of people had accepted Christ with the exception of two individuals. And one of those two accepted Jesus between the time of George Mueller's death and his funeral, and the other about two years later. This shows the tremendous effect of a winsome, wholesome, godly life, plus claiming the promises of God and angels to do their work. Is there another question? Well, uh, my wife is as frivolous as they come. How can I hope to win her to anything serious? That is also a very good question. Now, there are two different philosophies concerning how to win this wife. Let me tell you one philosophy that breaks the law of choice and humility. A man came to me down in, uh, well, I won't tell you where, <laughs> thousands of miles from here. And he told me of an experience he had on a dance floor. He said at, uh, at 20, 20 minutes of one, one dark night, right on the dance floor, he said, I gave my heart to the Lord. He said, my wife was over on the other side dancing with another partner. He said, I stalked over to where she was and I said, look, I have just given my heart to Jesus Christ. He said, you see that clock? It says 20 minutes of one. Unless you give your heart to Jesus, by the time that, that hand points to one, I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> and he said, when it struck one o'clock, my wife had not given her heart to Christ, and Pastor Coon, I divorced her. And you know, I almost went into shock. Now, there he was, reporting a missionary visit. <laughs> a missionary visit for whom? For Satan. Now that's obviously not the right way, and this is the extreme, but there are many, many professed Christians who are trying to win their frivolous mates by pressure. The pressure will never work. It must be the pressure of winsome, wholesome, uh, unpressuring, humble love. Uh, my favorite author, when she was just a young girl in her teens, perhaps about 16 or 17 years of age, felt a great burden to win a lot of frivolous young people, and some were married, to the Lord. She went to them and represented the love of Jesus. They actually saw tears in her eyes, tears of love. She prayed for them all night. Before she was through, every single one of those frivolous people had accepted Jesus Christ. So we unite with this winsomeness in Christ, this intercessory prayer. Is there another question? Uh, my husband once came to church with me. In fact, he came fairly regularly for several years. Then a series of evangelistic meetings was conducted, and during an altar call, various church members pressed close to him, urging him to give his heart to the Lord and join the church. Since then, he will not go with me at all. He says he was caught once, almost, and he does not plan to be embarrassed again. What can I do? My friends, this is a common occurrence in many Christian churches. Just think of it now. Here is an altar call. And here is one man sitting there, and a man goes and speaks to him, the result of which is he comes and gives his heart to the Lord. 
another man sits there and two or three men go and speak to him, the result is that man never returns. Now, what is the difference between their having spoken to one man who gives his heart to the Lord and remains in Christ and another man who is so embarrassed that he never returns? It's a very important thing. The one man to whom these two or three men came, one of them said to him, uh, an experience that parallels this. One man said to him, we love you. He went home and told his wife. He said, this man told me he loved me as he was trying to get me to go to the altar. But he said, the man had never come to my home. He'd never taken an interest in me. So how in the world could I assume that he loved me? I don't believe he loved me. I believe he was just looking for another church member. Now that is why this particular man would never set foot in the church again. Another man comes to the altar and gives his heart to the Lord. And the reason he does, the man that came to him had been with him. He had gone fishing with him. He'd shown an interest in him. This man knew that the man that invited him to the altar, he knew that man truly loved him with all his heart. He knew that man would not embarrass him for the world. There's the difference between two different individuals. And I think here's another question that's just come in. Will there be people in heaven that wouldn't have been there if someone hadn't prayed for them? If so, it seems like we would pray more so more would be saved. Uh, that's very good, isn't it? Very good. This shows the value of intercessory prayer. Even the Apostle Paul said, brethren, pray for me. And Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, you'll strengthen your brethren. Uh, Lot and his family were the objects of Abraham's intercessory prayer. They were saved because of Abraham's intercessory prayer. So intercessory prayer is a strong Bible doctrine. In fact, Elijah on Mount Carmel came to the zenith of his life of intercessory prayer. He had been praying for Israel those three and a half years. And then, as the, the events on Carmel concluded, and he began to pray for rain, if, you, if any of you who have studied this carefully will learn that Elijah, right then as he was praying for rain, was interceding for apostate Israel. Think of the tremendous effects of Elijah's life. Intercessory prayer is part of God's plan for the conversion of souls. Well, I'm so happy that they put this question in. Might I uh, relate this too? to encourage the person who put that question in a little further. We were holding a series of meetings in a certain city, and someone told me that a leading official of that city had given his heart to the Lord and become a member of the church. And uh, so I thought that I would learn how he was persuaded to do this. One day I met him on the outside of the church. He was a very, a very dignified man. And I said, Mr. Blank, could you, uh, could you tell me what persuaded you to unite with the church? I said, I understand that your wife had been a Christian for many years before you. I said, did she nag you a little bit? <laughs> did she high pressure you a little? And this man was a very quiet man. And for a minute, I thought he wasn't even listening. And finally, after a few seconds, he just kind of shook his head thoughtfully. I said, would you tell me, what did she do? Did she do something out of place? or did she do it in the right way? He said, Pastor, 
My wife never nagged me. She never belittled me. She never applied any pressure. But he said, many a night I have been awakened at midnight when my wife thought I was sound asleep, and I was, as quietly as a mouse, she slipped out of bed, down onto her knees, and he said, I heard her sniffle. She was quietly sobbing before the Lord, praying for me. He said, I want to tell you, I gave my heart to the Lord, but was after years of, his inter of her intercessory prayer. God answers prayer, friends. And when we follow the seven secrets of soul winning, we can reach right up and take hold of the throne of God. Next question. My, my husband used to be a sincere Christian, but then he backslid and hates the church. He claims that certain members of the church have not been honest in their business dealings with him, and he wants nothing to do with the church now. Do you have any suggestions? Yes, indeed. There are two phases of this uh, uh, accusation. There are many accusations that are made against God's people which are false. The Bible makes this very clear. It says in Romans 2.1 that there's a type of individual who condemns another individual and the other individual is innocent but the one condemning him is not. I have known of many individuals who've condemned others as being dishonest when they were perfectly innocent. I checked and double-checked on the lives and the business activities of those that were condemned, and I found that they were absolutely upright. Now, the other phase is, let us under no condition be in the position of individuals against whom such a charge can be made justly. God says, Jesus said, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, you do the same to them. This is the golden rule, you see. Matthew 7, 12. So, the best way to know whether a man is a Christian, one of the most wonderful ways is how does he deal in business? Does he keep his financial word? Is he trying to pull a fast deal on his friends, neighbors? God wants the Christian individual to be fair in every business deal, to reflect Jesus Christ. Is there another question? What? What should I do? My friend is Lutheran, and he's trying to convert me. I say, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for the Lutheran or for the Baptist or whoever that person is that wants to convert one to Jesus Christ. Wanting to convert one some, someone to Jesus is something to commend people for. Thank the Lord for people that are trying to do more than just do business and selfishly live for themselves. But if this individual succeeds in converting someone to Jesus, praise the Lord. Now here's another question. My husband always saw all the little things that the church members did. I tried to tell him that he shouldn't look to others, but to Jesus. After 30 years, he gave his heart to Jesus. I'm so thankful. It was shortly before he died. I guess that's not a question. Yes, but it's a good testimony, isn't it? Now. When we look to the faults of people, instead of looking to Jesus, we've learned this. This is probably one of the first uh, signs, visible signs, of backsliding. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12:10. So when a man begins to backslide, one of the very first signs of backsliding is he begins to look at the faults of various people. One of the best uh, 
best signs of his returning to Jesus is by his looking to Jesus. Look unto me and you'll be saved. But that's a good testimony. Does God love an unchristian as much as a Christian? Should we love worldly people as much as our church friends? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I thank the Lord for a question like that. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10 answer this question. It says that God loved us while we were yet sinners. And then it says God loved us while we were still enemies. And he gave his son to die for us while we're still his enemies. God doesn't wait until we shape up before he loves us. God loves the vilest sinner before he shapes up at all. Why? No sinner can shape up. By grace are you saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Anyone who gets the impression or gives the impression that somebody must shape up before we Christians love him, he is not representing the love of God at all. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44 to 47, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. This shows that you're the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the wicked and on the good. Divine love loves the vilest sinner before he shows any signs of repentance. In fact, it is the love of God that brings the sinner to repentance. Uh, Romans 2, verse 4. Uh, we have some good friends who belong to another church. We have invited them several times to evangelistic meetings. They always have other plans. They have come with us to special musical programs and have enjoyed them. But when we invite them to a meeting of that nature, they find excuses. What can we do to get them to come? My husband has gone fishing with the husband. That's a good start. Very good start. Now, you'll check over to see whether in inviting these dear Christian friends to your church, it's all right to invite them. It's wonderful too. But study and see whether you've merely gone fishing once or whether you've gone a little farther and taking, uh, taken an interest in various things in which they're interested, you see. Uh, another thing is, no Christian should give a Christian of another faith the impression that he's out trying to proselyte him. We're not in the business of proselyting for the sake of getting more members from a statistical standpoint. We're out to show people the love of Christ. Thank God for the beautiful Christians that are in every denomination. But thank the Lord for you that you're associating with these dear people of another faith. And uh, you keep right on and they'll probably come to your church some of the times. And, uh, and you may come to some of their meetings too. Here's one. How come it sounds like God is a very selfish God? The reason many people think God is selfish is because they associate God with people who profess to be God's children. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, speaking of the Christian, he said, You are our epistles, read and known of all men. We have found during many decades of our experience that the non-Christian equates Jesus Christ and God with those who profess to serve God. If we appear selfish, the natural thing is for them to think that God is selfish. If we appear malicious, they think of God as malicious. 
If we take the attitude that we're holier than they, they take the attitude that God's looking down his nose. So we are representatives of God. We're the only Bible that some people will read. Therefore, let us go to Jesus and say, Lord, do what you promised to do in Romans 5, 5. Flood me with a love that only your Holy Spirit can do. Then people will see that I'm unselfish and they'll be to believe that God is unselfish too. My husband tells me that the reason why he does not want to be a member of the church is that there are hypocrites in the church. He says he knows some who are crooked in business dealings as a ram's horn. What's the answer? I think that we covered it largely in one of the other questions. And, uh, but you might explain this to him also. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus gave the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this is a picture of the church. In the church, there are hypocrites and there are the genuine. And it says that we are not ourselves to try to single out the hypocrite from the genuine, except on the basis of known open sin. Then we're to take action. In every church in America and throughout the world, in every denomination, there are hypocrites and there are sincere people. So there, and, but those who are outside of the church are also hypocrites, many. So there are more sinners outside of the church than in the church. So we can tell him that he's perhaps in a little better company in the church. At least he doesn't unite with the church from the angle of who he's going to associate with, but from the angle of following Jesus Christ. I see. Pastor Kuhn, my wife, was not a member of my faith when we married, but she promised me she would become. But after we were married, she decided against it. It is not because anyone had been unkind to her. She evidently promised me she would join the church just so we would marry. Now, once married, she couldn't, she couldn't care less. I am burdened. Praise the Lord. Who wouldn't be burdened to see a soul saved eternally? To think of a life that measures with the life of God. Oh, my. Of course we'd be burdened. Now, the question is, how are we going to seek to win this person? Some individuals will justify wrong methods on the basis that we're burdened. Being burdened for a soul does not justify me in using carnal methods. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 says, the weapons of our warfare should not be carnal like uh, belittling people, you see. Uh, taking a holier-than-thou attitude, uh, trying to high-pressure them, preaching at them. So this, the only way to win this lady is, is not by pressure, it's not by belittling her, it's not by scolding her, it's by just the opposite method. And that is to be so winsome, so wholesome, such a sweet Christian, so meek, that she will say, my, I would like, I would like to find what you have found, the joy that you emit, I would like that. In other words, we are to sell, as it were, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to lure people. We're to be fishers of men. Is there one more? My husband often comes to church with me, but there are only two men who so much as know he is present. He says if the church members are not interested in him, why should he be interested in the church? He says the church just wants his money. What to do? Well, it's well for us Christians to realize that soul winning consists of two phases. This is very important. 
We're told in 1 John 4, 19, we love him, that's Christ, we love him because he first loved us. The basis of soul winning is largely fellowship. I often suggest to people to think of soul winning this way. Think of it as 95% fellowship and 5% instruction. This individual came to church expecting to see in church a fellowship. He didn't find it because the majority of members of that particular church evidently had uh, been frustrated. They thought soul winning consisted of instructing people who had never asked to be instructed. The human heart is longing for fellowship. It's longing for love. The world is dying for a little bit of love. This man, you could see, came into church hoping to find some fellowship. He finds lots of people who are willing to instruct him, but the need of the soul is 95% fellowship and 5% instruction. I'm not trying to be dogmatic regarding the percentages. But friends, if we once think of soul winning as a spiritual courtship, it can completely change our methods of trying to persuade people. Soul winning is a spiritual love affair. That's why men work for men. That's why ladies work for ladies. Or two or more Christians work for people of either sex. This way, we put a protection around our soul winning program. Never forget that soul winning is a courtship, a divine love affair, a sacred fellowship in Jesus Christ with just a little dab here and there of instruction. Now, we can't live up to any of these principles except in Jesus. That's why Paul says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So shall we go to Christ and ask him to fulfill the promise of Philippians 2, 13. Dear Lord in heaven, you have said it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We can never have the winsomeness of Jesus unless Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts. We throw open the doors of our hearts anew, dear Lord, to Jesus Christ. And then we will say, for me to live is Christ. Thank you for coming in in a deeper way, a more meaningful way, with the love of Jesus Christ and the beautiful fellowship of the Lord. In thy lovely name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.